HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant. Learn more at KermitLynch.com. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality. Subscribe for free at youtube.com slash labxnas. This week on Meat and 3, we're turning an eye to food at its trickiest, from imitation olive oil to the pretensions of 3D printers. We were just doing like a birthday party for one of the employees, and we printed a steak just for fun. You know, a grape Jolly Rancher isn't going to satisfy your craving for, for grapes. So, I mean, in a sense, it kind of multiplies the, the sensory qualities that we can love in the world. So basically, you culture the cell, in a bioreactor, it grows, and then ultimately, at the end, you come out with a piece of meat. Tune in to Meat in 3, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary human who inspires me with what they do every day and how they change my world. Today, I am so excited to have on the show Bricia Lopez. I first came across her, and I can't believe it took me this long, but I fell in love with you through your cookbook, Oaxaca, which is so incredibly beautiful. I was in my favorite cookbook store, now serving LA, and there it was, and I'm like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And then I was looking at the recipes and just fell in love with your voice and everything about you. And then discovered that you sell mole, jars of mole. So that was like mind blown number two. I can admire the cookbook, but I don't have to use it because I can use the mole paste. (laughs) And then um, you were part of the Giving Broadly inaugural series of women. And then last night I got to have dinner at your restaurant, Galagetza in Los Angeles. So I've got like so many connections to you, all of which just made me so excited to have this conversation. So welcome to Speaking Broadly. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dana. You have no idea how happy that makes me just to hear because that's exactly my mission. It's to bring Oaxaca to the world. And you and you can bring it to the world because you can do it on paper, you can do it in a jar, and you can do it in a restaurant. There's so many ways. I wanted to dial all the way back to when you were a little girl. You came to the States when you were 10, but 
I don't know what kind of memories you might have from those early years in Oaxaca, but I'm so curious because your father sold mezcal and you are a world-renowned expert now. But even when you were a little girl, you were involved with mezcal. So can you take me back? And what, what was that like? I think you worked a little bit for your dad. Yes, I did. I just also want to just disclosure. This is Mexico, right? In the late 80s, early 90s. So I just want to paint the picture, right? My father is from a town, Matatlan, in Oaxaca. And if you know anyone or if you are from Matatlan, you know that either your family or your cousin or your friend or everybody makes mezcal. I mean, it is a mezcal town. And my family has several generations back in Matatlan. So you know, him and his family made mezcal. My dad actually was one of the first people that opened up a mezcal store. And I think like really that's when I subconsciously, I guess, started understanding what a brand was because he made like his store name and that was the name of the store and we only sold our mezcal. And I was, I'm going to say seven, six, seven at the time. And my job was to like go find customers and have them like come buy at my dad's store. And this was in a little town called El Tule. And if any of you have gone to Oaxaca, El Tule is known for this ancient tree that's in the middle of the town. And there's a big tourist attraction and hundreds of tourists visited every day. And they're actually children that gave you tours of the tree. And the kids are anywhere from, again, seven to 10 years old giving these tours. So it wasn't like weird that I was hanging out with these kids and then I would sort of pull these customers and say like, hey, do you want to like try mezcal? And I would take them to my dad's store. And then my sister, who's three years older than me, would be there, you know, cutting up limes and giving out samples. <laughs> and then people would buy some and then we'd close up shop and my dad would come and we'd come home. And that was my job at six, seven years old. And then when I turned 10, uh, we moved to Los Angeles. My dad opened a, a restaurant in Los Angeles called Gelaguetza. And he gave up mezcal making. He didn't really see a future in it because back then nobody, people in Brooklyn were not drinking mezcal in 94. And it was seen as like something that the poor people would drink or the indigenous would drink. And it was just seen as like very low level, like moonshine. I'm curious, what do you think that made that transition from, you know, mezcal being what you just described as sort of close to moonshine to being something that people are obsessed with. And I, I don't think that's an, an overstatement to say. I think that my sort of, I guess, unscientific analysis <laughs> based on zero research, sort of the, the, what I've watched is this evolution of our palates. You know, it happened in craft beer. I think that if people who are really into craft beer like no way they will they drink a Corona or a Modelo again. Like it will taste like nothing, right? Because they think their palate is just like now asking for more, right? And then people jump from craft beer then to like super hoppy IPAs and then they just go crazy, right? Like I've seen some beers that have alcohol content that's so high. I'm like, bro, like this is too much for me, right? <laughs> even for even for me. And then we see it now with natural wines, right? Like people just, they just want something new in their palate. And then you marry that with really the, the mezcal craze begun about a decade ago, maybe a little bit more. And that was really when Portlandia came out and everybody was like making fun of people wanting to know what the name of their chickens and, you know, those that sort of movement, right, that we were all part of. The San Francisco, California cuisine, the farm to table, like 
Although that seems like now, I guess if you're a Gen Z, seems like it hasn't always been like this, but it wasn't like that. <laughs> it was really like truly a revolution, right? Like that word farm to table was so new back then. And mezcal just hit all those points. And then you marry that with today with people just wanting more and more and more. People who just have mezcal will never go back to having tequila. It, would, it wouldn't taste the same. It's sort of like being someone who drinks vodka, then finding whiskey. And you're like, how did I ever drink vodka before? It's like the same sort of thing. So when your father first came, um, he came without the family and he came with an, uh, something of an idea. I'd love you to just bring us back to that time because he came and packed a couple of things in his bag and there was no Oaxacan restaurant here. There wasn't even a sort of a Oaxacan community. Like He had to find it. And I just think that's such a beautiful story of creating an entire community around food truly out of nothing but passion. Oh, 100%. I love the way you put it. My dad moved here with absolutely nothing. I mean, this is the very, you know, American dream story. When this was in the early 90s, he lost everything. Like there was a huge peso devaluation. So one day you had 100 pesos and the next day you had one. Like, it was crazy. And my dad, you know, was a merchant. He was a salesperson and he sold mezcal. So like his money just lost value in a day. Like my family had zero money. Like they were down to just like two weeks worth of food situation, you know? So... My dad had a sister here, my aunt. She was living in, in LA. She cleaned houses and, and told my dad, you should move here. Like there's so much work and I think you could really help your family. He talked to another one of his brothers. And my dad always tells me this, like he always dreamed of his family going to school in the, in the US, like in LA. He says that he doesn't know where that dream came from. And I think he just sort of saw this opportunity and he was like, you know what? I'm just going to move. I'm going to see what's up. And then when he moved here, he was helping my aunt and he actually thought about becoming a gardener because he saw a lot of people that looked like him kind of go into that business. And he was going to move to Fresno until one day he ran into someone from Oaxaca and they were talking about food. My mom back then, she was left with four children. We were uh, ages one, six, nine, and 12. So my poor mom. I've got to say that's inconceivable to me. And I know you have two kids now and, you know, we'll talk about motherhood, but wow, your mom, in addition to being an amazing cook, amazing. I know. Trust me. I like have so much respect for her now as a mother. And we'd go to the market and we'd buy these ingredients for my dad so he could like have food. And I think it's like people from Oaxaca have this really close connection to their food. And I'm sure you saw it when you were in the Oaxacan airport, but people leave Oaxaca with bags full of food tortillas and mole and chorizo and like bread and mole and chocolate like people are in line to, to check into their flight with food so we would ship food to my dad he'd go to Tijuana pick it up and he started selling that he started selling that to people he knew that were from Oaxaca and there was a Oaxacan community in Oaxaca and he just sort of found little pockets right and like and, and the thing is that when a community migrates, they seem to just sort of go in these pockets, right? Like that's why you have Thai town and Koreatown. And, you know, now people call it Oaxaca, California, like a little like little areas because your cousin moves and you want to move somewhere where you know somebody. And that's how really how those immigrant communities 
uh, grow. And my dad just found these pockets all over Southern California. And he would drive all the way to Santa Barbara, Santa Maria. And I'm getting like really, you know, geographically specific for those of you who are familiar with Southern California. But that really was a lot of driving ox nerd. And he started just driving and selling food to people's homes. Like, the same way people used to sell encyclopedias he would knock on your door like he would go and sell tlayudas and mole and chocolate and after some time he he was a a food vendor a street food vendor and sold tlayudas on the street which really in Oaxaca it's very typical for people to just sell food on the street it's like a part of a culture right but also for him to like swallow his pride and actually do it because that was that's really like a woman's job to sell food in the street in Oaxaca it really is um if you look at all the street food vendors in Oaxaca I would say about 80 percent of them are women um who cook and sell whether it's clayudas or antojitos or empanadas or anything of that source or even in the mercados when you see merchants it's mostly women in the mercado selling food so he did it and then he saw this little place that was for lease he didn't even know what that meant now i need to also preface by saying that my father to this day 27 years after migrating to the u.s still doesn't know how to speak english so he did all of this without speaking english he figured out how to lease a restaurant with the help of his sister And they both started together and started out their restaurant. And then after it was sort of going, then he realized I belong in this country. Like I belong here. There's so much opportunity. And that's when we moved. And I was transplanted from Oaxaca to Los Angeles. And that's, I think I feel like that's how truly I've been. I mean, I was 10. So I 100% remember everything of my childhood in Oaxaca. I was so happy and so beautiful. Like I'm so blessed to have been brought up in that environment. I call myself a 200 percenter, like 100% Oaxacan and 100%, you know, American. Like I am a hundred and a hundred. What was it like when you first got to LA? I was so excited. Like I had been watching Saved by the Bell and Full House dubbed for years as a child. And like Zach Morris was like my love. And like to be able to just like be a step closer to Zach Morris, I felt like, oh my God, one day I'm going to meet him, right? My sister and I also used to play make-believe that we were sisters living in LA, like when we were living in Oaxaca. We would like pretend to speak English, like just gibberish. We would just speak gibberish. And it's that's why it's so beautiful. Like today, speaking as a mother, when I see my 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 child having these fantasies, like I just let him run wild because I've manifested this in some sort of weird way, right? I mean, I, I have to say, I loved your son came up with potions and in theory selling them for $10 a piece. And I love that sense of imagination that you've clearly passed down. One of the things that was transformational for your family restaurant was Jonathan Gold, the late, great, extraordinary critic coming in and recognizing that this food was amazing did you get to know jonathan at all i did it's hard to have conversations about jonathan without getting emotional for me he meant so much for my family like he's been gone for for a few years now more than a couple and he met me when i was like 12 13 he just saw me sort of flourish in the industry and he was just such a pivotal person in my family's life i mean the amount of support that he gave and 
not just to my restaurant, but to the Oaxacan community, right? And not just wrote, wrote up on my restaurant, but wrote up several Oaxacan restaurants. And, and I think he did that not only for the Oaxacan community, but for so many immigrant communities, right? Like I was just one. But he was such a important person in peace and my family's history. And a lot of people learned about Galagetza because of Jonathan Gold. And I remember we did a, a panel together in downtown and I told them how we were going to have a cookbook. And I'm like, you got a pinky promise. You're going to do like the foreword to my book. And he's like, I have never done that, but I'll do one for you. I can't say no. And he was going to do my foreword and it didn't happen. But that's why I dedicated like really the book to him because gosh, like he was always like lifting up women in food and always just like giving. He was such a giver. There will never be another Jonathan Gold in Los Angeles. And to this day, you can feel the loss, you know, the, the, the hole he left. Yeah, his impact is honestly immeasurable. Not just the writing in his case, but who he championed and how fiercely he did that and how selfless he was in the pursuit. I mean, he became a figure and his name was so important. That's not what he was interested in. You know, he was interested in discovering, you know, what was true and real and, and genuine. So when you were growing up in the States, and just as you did when you were seven, eight, nine, ten years old in Oaxaca, you were working in, in the restaurant. You were working from day one here. I mean, I, what was it like being in the family restaurant? And I think you didn't get to go to the prom. I mean, there were a lot of there was a lot of work that was involved in that restaurant. Yeah, I mean, it's I think anyone who grew up in a family business understands that it really is family business first and then family time second, right? It's just about surviving and making it work. And my parents, the only time I got to see them was really at the restaurant when my mom would drop us off and pick us up from school. And then it was the restaurant. It was always the restaurant. It like that is where we spent time where we would have our meals together. You know, weekends were have always been crazy. I mean, weekends are a restaurant's, you know, bread and butter. And I could never get sick. Like if I was sick, it was because I was lazy and get up and go to work. And that's the way you feel better. And, you know, most of the time it did work. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I do feel better. And time would go by so fast on the weekends. And I remember coming home and going to sleep and I would have like dreams about the restaurant of like sitting people down or people screaming at me because I didn't get their table, you know, on time. And I, I was always sort of very front of the house driven and, you know, hostessing or waitressing or busing. And I would actually also dance in between because we had like dance performances for chlorical performances. So we had a little group and I was in the group. And the, the reason why I begun dancing is because it was like the only thing I could do aside from working. So either like I would be taking down names and sitting people down or I could go dance in the folkloric group. So, you know, that really was my life all through, gosh, middle school and high school. Were you ever resentful? Like, oh my goodness, get out of my dreams and get, you know, get out of my Saturdays. I just want them back. Oh, all the time. I mean, like, gosh, like I would just like dream about having weekends off. And I think that's why I'm a little jaded even now. I mean, 
I actually don't work weekends now most of the time, not all the time. I think because I have like some weird trauma from when I was younger. Um, but yeah, it was just, I, I hated it. Like you have no idea how much I hate it working in my family's business. And I would just say like, you know what? I'm never going to take over this thing. Like I would just not like it. And I had kind of like a love-hate relationship because sometimes I would love what I would do because again, time would go by so fast. But then I would hate it because I would come back to school and, you know, children would tell us about their family vacation or like I did this over the weekend or they're like hey come this weekend we're gonna go bike riding I'm like homegirl can't even ride a bike you know what I mean like because I didn't have a chance I was always working so that really really sucked but I am so grateful today for all those days like I would not change a thing about it and to be honest like I look back I'm like who cares if I didn't go to prom like I really truly do not care well we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna talk about the restaurant's evolution and the next generation taking over Galagetza. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant, an importer, retailer, and wholesaler of fine wine from France and Italy, headquartered in Berkeley, California. In 1972, Kermit Lynch opened a retail shop in Berkeley, California with a $5,000 loan and a bit of gumption. He started with just 35 cases of wine stacked on the floor. Kermit grew his business from a retailer into a wholesaler and a national importer of wines from France and Italy. These wines are produced by small family growers who are committed to the old world traditions and culture. It is Kermit's belief that great wine is made in the vineyard, not the cellar. Much like his close friends, the late food writer Richard Olney and Chez Panisse's founder Alice Waters, Kermit's influence has been enduring. He has spent nearly half a century shining the spotlight on small artisan producers. Learn more at KermitLynch.com, K-E-R-M-I-T-L-Y-N-C-H.com. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a new video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality. In the first episode, three chemists swap cookie recipes, and once they finish baking, they ship them back to the recipe's owner. Along the way, they share insightful information on how chemistry can help you become a better baker. Watch the first episode and subscribe to the series for free at youtube.com slash labxnas. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is the extraordinary Priscia Lopez, and we've been talking about Oaxacan food. And if you're not hungry or thirsty by now, I don't know what's wrong with you. I just, I am so ready for some mole and some mezcal. But we were talking before the break about your family and how you worked so much at the restaurant. And really, though, maybe at that moment and in that time as you're a teenager, you were a bit resentful, like looking back, like the things you missed really don't matter. And being with your family is so, so important. And your father, when he came to the States in order to start a new life and open the restaurant, he was leaving a crisis, right? Like the peso had crashed. 
He came here. He built a business from nothing. But then I think it was 2008 came and there was a terrible recession that took a hit at your family restaurant. Can you just tell me about like that experience in the restaurant and in that time? Yes. So my dad, you know, grew his business exponentially. At some point we had five locations. He also launched like two other businesses. He really like grew really fast and wanted to scale rapidly and he did but he did it without a team and he did it without knowing without education and you know it's a great case study for any business owner to see what happens when you grow too much too fast without proper protocols and a right team in place and without any just like without knowing anything my dad lost all his money like everything he didn't have any savings he didn't have any alternative investments and my mom declared bankruptcy like they lost their home my car got repossessed like I went from driving a really nice car to you know riding the bus to work every day I mean like we went from like I mean not from rags to riches but from riches to rags I guess <laughs> real quick and it, it taught me number one what hard work can achieve, but also what the lack of support can do and the lack of being prepared. I mean, that sounds really traumatic. You worked so hard and the signs of success were so visible. I mean, he grew so much and there was so much love sent your way just in terms of people appreciating the products and the, the restaurants. What was that like at that moment? Like, was it shocking You know, did it take a long time to figure out what went wrong? Uh, I mean, I think we started seeing the signs right away. But I think by then it was too late. You know what I mean? Like, it's just being unprepared, not being focused on, on what you need to focus on, spreading yourself way too thin. Today, why this time around when, you know, 2020 happened... Yes, did it shock me 100%, but was I worried? Mm, Probably not because it's like I already lost everything once. Like I know what that feels like. My siblings and I were prepared. We did have some sort of safety net. We were educated. We have a great team. Like, And I just thought if my dad came here with nothing and was able to build something, I could start from nothing too. And how much more could I achieve because you know I already have that foundational knowledge right and for us it was really putting putting our team first and I think like my dad grew up in a country and came from a different leadership style he was very all about like iron fist and didn't really understand how how leadership needed to be for a community to grow Um, which I think was also a huge reason why people were stealing from us everything that you could think that could have gone wrong went wrong and back from 2008 to 2010 and I learned I learned from that how did you and your siblings help your parents and take over the restaurant like what was that moment and then what were the first steps that you took to get on the right course and what did you ever think I don't really want to do this Uh, I think for like a second, maybe I thought I didn't want to do it. But I think that that lasted again a hot second. And then I was like, what am I talking about? Like, there is no way that I could let my family's legacy just drizzle and disappear, you know, in a span of just a year. Like there was just no way that I could go home and sleep at night knowing that I didn't do right by my family, given 
everything they had done for us. So my parents, again, when I say retire, I, I really mean that my parents, we had like a family meeting. My brother, my sister and I said, listen, this is going to happen. We'll buy the restaurant from you. Obviously, we don't have any money, right? So we can't pay you out or buy you out, but we can pay you in monthly payments. And this is the price and you can move to Oaxaca and you'll get this payment every month until the business is paid off. And they had sold another restaurant, so they decided to just move and leave. And I think that as far as transition, that was the best decision because it really allowed us to be free to make decisions that we always wanted to make, but we're too afraid because what is my dad going to think? Or my dad's not going to like this, you know, and allowed us to just be us and really give a little bit of who we are, like breathe a little bit of new life into the restaurant and evolve it. And that's really what you see today. Like I get to today is a reflection of my siblings and I, but with the same spirit that my family, my parents have always given it. So what in what ways have you evolved it? Because I know that the, you know, the food is very true to like what your grandmother would make and your mother would make. But you've you obviously bring a whole another aesthetic and another generation's point of view. Yeah. So, you know, things that would have never happened under my father. Number one, I feel like the music we're playing is very different than the music that my dad would have played before. Right. The live bands that we have, uh, what we used to have, were also a big part of the restaurants, like live music, the decor, the mezcal program, the ingredients. I think those things are basic, you know, making better ingredients all the time, even though the processes were the same, but better control on inventory. And I think that more than anything, it's the ability to change the leadership style. It's really about we're all a big family. And my dad didn't really see it that way. To him, they were employees. For us, they're a family. And again, there's nothing, nothing wrong with my father. It's just the way he grew up and the way he saw it. Right, it's a completely different generation. I, I think, you know, I also read that he was like, I literally can't keep doing this business. And he needed to go back to Oaxaca. Yeah, he would always say like, if I stay here, like I'm gonna die. I am suffocating. And it was too much for him. I mean, I think still to this day, he still has like PTSD. Like when 2020 started off in March, he was having like anxiety attacks because even though he wasn't here, you know, because he was like, it's happening again, it's happening again. Like, oh my God, the world's gonna end. My kids are gonna lose everything. Like just... When he comes and visits now, he just sort of like, oh, I see you guys are okay. You guys are actually figuring things out. And I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it, dad. What is it like not being able to see them and not being able to go to Oaxaca? I'm so curious about the time you spend there and how that influences, you know, what you're doing in the restaurant. Yeah, I used to go to Oaxaca at the very least three to four times a year. That was very minimum. And I love to go... Because I just, aside from seeing my parents, I really love walking the streets of Oaxaca, seeing old friends, having dinner parties, talking to chefs and seeing like what the youth of Oaxaca is up to and just like picking their brain of like, so what else are you going to do? And just like that spirit of creativity. So I'm so curious, like, what's the answer to that? Like, in what way is Oaxaca evolving in Oaxaca? Well, number one, I will tell you one thing, Oaxaca will always be Oaxaca. So when I say evolving, like, listen, like, we fought tooth and nail, so there would not be a McDonald's in downtown. And like, I don't think that's happened. Like, well, it's so funny, because 
one of my best friends, he he would tell me, wow, Oaxaca's really changed. I'm like, the only thing that Oaxaca's changing is that like this street is whiter. Where else has it changed? And he's like, oh yeah, you're right. But I will say this, the way things that have evolved, I think that people have this sense of even a bigger pride and ownership of what their culture means. I think before it was like they were waiting for people to tell them, oh yeah, like this is nice. Like this is, this is great. Like, hey, like you're cool. Or they were waiting for a white man to come save them. <laughs> but I think right now they don't need that. Like right now I see so many families like not even wanting to leave Oaxaca, right? Like I have a future here. I can make our own mezcal or I can do this. I see so many young people taking over their family businesses, wanting to speak native languages, wanting to learn how to weave, wanting to continue. And this idea that they have to leave is disappearing a little bit. Obviously, there's still a lot of people and right now, uh, it's it's been hard for a lot of people because tourism is low but within Mexico I think that this level of creativity a lot of people working with artisans and even like I said you know you walk through Oaxaca and others five mezcal shops where they sell different brands of mezcal you go to a place and you know now there's someone who's the mezcal expert in a restaurant and they can tell you all about how to experience it which never really happened and you have specific groups of people being like you want to learn how to make chocolate you want to learn everything about what it is like here's a family that can tell you because they've been doing it for generations and now the kids are taking over so i just think there's a lot more pride and awareness more than anything there's a level of awareness that there's so much value in their culture and culture cannot be bought or replicated it's something that you innately have to be a part of i just want to talk about motherhood and working certainly those two things have never come together quite as they have during covid how much time do you have you know how much time do you have <laughs> um, you're such a champion of women and you know working women and working mothers and you and your sister have an amazing podcast super mama and boy i know the topic is so gigantic but where do i begin what is most important to you about being a working mom what's hard what should change what should change um well i think number one i'm going to speak from my experience and from my household experience i know it's different for every single person but um, there's a lot of similarities, though. And, you know, you see all those memes when people say, like, here's a dad working from home. He's working. Here's a mom working from home. And you see her doing the dishes and cooking and homeschooling. And I think that caused a lot of resentment in a lot of moms early on. And I think for us, for example, my, my husband and I, it, it, it caused a lot of friction early on. And it had to be a lot of communication, therapy. And we kind of gone to the place where I, I feel that he understood and I think that's what women are just like understand me right like understand what I'm going through and I, I'm blessed to have a great partner that has been able to see how much women have struggled and is able to now show up for the household and understand it's a community right especially if both of us are bringing in the bread 
as they say. It's a team, right? It's not a fight of one, it's a fight of two. But I think that it takes a lot for people to see that, especially our male counterparts. Our male counterparts have to show up for the community in their home. They have to show up for women. And if they don't, women are just going to go crazy. And and women have to speak up too. I think a lot of women keep it inside and, and it eats at them little by little, right? I think in the beginning, I was not asking for help. I was sort of just assuming that my husband would step up, right? Wrong assumption. Uh, I, I had to be vocal and I had to say what I needed to show up as a better mom, to show up as a better boss. And just like you need help at work, I'm, at work, I don't do everything. I don't. I have a great team. I can't do everything at home either. I need my my MVP. I, I need my counterpart. But even with all of that, I think that no matter what, I think it's a lot of a huge mental struggle for moms because we've been told all our life that we have to do everything. We've been conditioned to think that we have to be homemakers and we have to be the successful women outside of the home. And, you know, we have to, at the end of the day, be there for our partner, you know? So it's like a lot of expectations, unrealistic expectations that I think 2020 put at the forefront of everything, you know? And I think without my husband showing up and, you know, being there and stepping up, I, I think by I, we would not be having this conversation. I'd probably be crying somewhere. And just when every time I hear of somebody having to leave their jobs because they had to decide, it, it just breaks my heart knowing that they, they were even put in that position. Right. No one should ever have to decide. It's so it's so true. I mean, you just think of all the things that women who are at home are juggling. And in this case, like add the homeschooling to the cooking, to the cleaning up. And yes, you can have a a really wonderful counterpart, but it's a lot of work for even two people when your kids are actually being schooled at home and everybody needs to eat. So what inspired you and your sister to do the podcast? Um, when I gave birth to my son, who's my first, uh, my sister had two daughters. And as soon as this child came out of my body and I was able to hold them and I came home, the first thing that I thought about was like, God damn, I have been such a horrible sister because my sister had to go through this whole thing by herself. But when I wasn't a mom, I was, you know, at the restaurant working full time. When I was done with work, I would, you know, hit the town with the girls, go, you know, to the newest restaurant and seeing what new bar opened and, you know, hang out with the, with my girlfriends. Like that was my life and my boyfriend, right? I wasn't really the aunt that would have my niece's photo in my phone, but I had my dog and my dog was everything, but I wasn't ever very motherly. You know, I didn't have that instinct inside of me. In fact, my friends never thought I was going to have children. And then as soon as I had a child, I just felt this sense of responsibility to my sister and this responsibility to every mother I knew. Like it was a, working into a whole new dimension. And I had this conversation with my sister. She had gone through postpartum depression all on her own. Just all these conversations that were so rich. And I thought a lot of people didn't talk about. We thought just to, you know, record them and hit publish and let them out into the world. And, you know, a lot of people felt the same way that we did. And we started talking about subjects that our community more than anything doesn't talk about in Latina community you don't talk about depression you don't talk about sexual abuse you don't talk about 
alternative ways of discipline children you know you you do things a certain way and that's the way it's done and if you do it any other way you don't share so we wanted to just break those molds and that's what we do with super mamas and you know it's been so fun my gosh five years now and you know we have a whole catalog of just our personal growth to see my sister's personal growth my personal growth i mean i remember shows when early on where i would be like super into a certain parenting way and which is like I go back and I'm like oh my gosh like not me anymore you know and just see like the growth of 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 two moms what do you think has changed the most in your perspective on life and motherhood I think that we often want to personally speaking um so much control over our kid's life right we say let them be responsible and how can I make my child grow but I think the way you do that is by letting them be and not try to force anything and not try to control anything. And that's very difficult to let them fail. And and that's even from when they're four months old, three months old, when they're trying to grab a toy and you go and grab it for them because you don't think that they can reach for it. To a six-year-old who wants to sell potions and you're like, well, why don't you name it this? And why don't you name it that, Right. Like, let them be and let them talk and let them just run wild. You grew up in the restaurant. You grew up working with your dad even, you know, when you were seven years old. What are your thoughts on your own kids and the family restaurant? (sighs) Uh, That's a tough one because people always ask me that. But I think I don't want to impose anything on my kids other than having a great work ethic. You know, my, my child actually just, just this week, he thankfully went back to school and he took his iPad with him when I didn't even know. And he came back and told me his iPad was broken. So I don't know what he did. And I told him, well, now you're going to have to like pay for it. Like I'm not going to buy you a new iPad. Like it costs money. And we went online and I showed him this is how much it costs. So um, he he had some savings of things that he's done. And he's, you know, made money from. So he's like, okay, this is how much I have. So this is how much more I have to make. And he thought of selling these tie-dye shirts because he loves tie-dyeing. God, he's obsessed with tie-dyeing. He t- wants to tie-dye everything. And he's like, maybe I can make a store and I can sell my shirts. And I'm like, great. Well, you're going to have to sell like a lot of shirts. And he's like, great. You know, and like that brings me joy. I mean, is he out there in the restaurant working? No, but I think him understanding that he needs to value money and understand that things aren't just given to him is um it's pretty cool and yeah so now i have to obviously it's work for me because i have to set up an online store and he has to you know tie dye and sell to his five-year-old friends which i don't even know if that's okay but you know that's what he wants to do that's what he wants to do <laughs> i think that's great that you're there to support him and he can tie dye to his heart's content and pay for his own ipad i feel like i'm getting so many good parenting lessons whatever 15 years too late but um that sounds like a really good lesson right there So at the end of each show, I ask my guests to give a shout out to a woman who they admire, who they think more people need to know about. And I'm just wondering, who would that woman be for you? I'm going to give a shout out to two women who, and I'm going to go local here. I live in Los Angeles, but there, there's two women who have started businesses from their home through this pandemic. Um, both of them selling baked goods one of them is selling macaroons and the other one is selling like pies and alternative breads and they both deliver to my home and they're both delicious and if you are in los angeles i highly like suggest that you would 
give them a follow and you know support female-owned businesses again these were businesses that were grown out of the pandemic one of them is uh, sweet carolina macaroons and the other one is called a loaf dot of love her name is safara majma and again both of these women mothers who are baking from their home great delicious goods and those are the women who i'm going to shout out and shout out to all 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 other women who have started businesses out of their home because it's tough i'm excited to try them i'm in la for just a few more days and so i'm gonna see if i can find them and track them down so and the last question is there an ingredient or a product that you use in your kitchen that you think makes life more delicious and easier for for people at home. I have to tell you that I bought this like plastic garlic thing that you like roll the garlic with. I've totally seen those. And so you crack the garlic instead of trying to like figure out how to peel it one by one. Yeah. And you know, I'm so like, I'm such a skeptic when it comes to these things because I'm just like, oh God, another thing. Like girl, just like it's fine. Just smash it with a with a knife and the peel comes off. It's not that big of a deal. But my mom wanted to buy this for herself. And I'm like, fine, I'll buy it for you. Then I saw it and I was like, this thing is amazing. <laughs> um, but I guess it's just called like a silicone garlic peeler, like a roller tube. My personal way of peeling garlic is to take a very heavy pot and smash the garlic. So you smash the clove, you, you can peel it at the same time. But this seems much neater and potentially actually much more efficient. And you get a special question because you are such an expert in mezcal. And because last night I had a really beautiful uh, mezcal drink with pineapple. And I know that you have uh, drinks named after you. There were at least three drinks named after you because of your reputation in the mezcal world. So off the top of your head, can we leave listeners with a delicious mezcal drink recipe? I think if you're going to enjoy a cocktail at home, a mezcal old-fashioned and a mezcal mule if you're into you know, ginger flavors, I think those two are very easy and I think familiar with people because it's where people already know how to make an old-fashioned. And also, I'm going to encourage people to try and make their own syrups at home. It's so easy, but you can add any sort of like syrup with limoncillo and cinnamon and use that syrup to make an old fashioned with either you do half mezcal, half tequila. If you're a beginner, if you are a graduate, do a full mezcal and have the mezcal be the star. And I know that you've you've tasted so many mezcals because I think in the Mama Rabbit in Las Vegas, I think that you have hundreds of mezcal to pour. Uh, do you have favorite mezcal brands that people need to know about? I, I try to stay away from like brands specifically just because I think that more than anything, like try different agaves. But, but I am going to give a shout out to a couple of mezcal brands that I've been, you know, just sort of like following and I really love what they're doing and their mezcal is so, so good. Um, one of them, Yola Mezcal, is such a great, easy mezcal to, to start with. And it's also a female-owned and ran. The second one would have to be El Farolito, which is made by Ulises Torrantera in Oaxaca. Gosh, if you can get yourself a bottle of El Farolito, it's wonderful. Real Minero is another beautiful mezcal, also female-owned uh, from Oaxaca, Graciela. Is the owner and it's just like anything from those three, I think you are going to be safe. That sounds fantastic. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me today on Speaking Broadly, Bricia. It's been 
such a delight to hear your family's story and your story and thank all of you for listening and joining us on this journey i look forward to having you again with us all you listeners next week i can't i can't wait to see you in person um when we we get to do that again so thank you again for joining me have a great week all of you take care Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.